I'm sorry, I don't speak English. Hello, my name is Will and this is Exploding Helicopter, the podcast that will only be recognised as a treasure after it's rediscovered in 150 years time. Now there's a tried and tested formula to launching a franchise. You take a best-selling series of novels, hire some big name actors and then spend a couple of hundred million on sets, special effects and exotic locations. So when Paramount Studios released Sahara, starring Matthew McConaughey back in 2005, they were anticipating a blockbuster. They thought that the film, based on Clive Cussler's popular Dirk Pitt character, would spawn a long-running action-adventure franchise. What they got was one of cinema's biggest box office flops, and a film that is now a byword for Hollywood failure. And talking of good ideas that turn out to be terrible, my guest today is a man you can rely on to disappoint. With me once again is Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. How you doing, Nick? Well, I am fantastic, and I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, it's been a while since you were last on. I uh, I went back through the records and uh, you last appeared on uh, episode 47 where I inflicted uh, Escape from L.A. on you. Mm. Mm. And I remember watching it and being really disappointed, but then it finally clicking like I completely just misread the film the whole time. And I've actually gone back to watch it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh wow! I didn't realize you'd uh, you'd gone back to it. So uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I I feel I'm feeling a little warm glow inside that I've you should, uh, you I've should. kind of talked you around to that movie. Yeah, it, it actually caught me off guard too. I wasn't planning on it, but it was on. It was like a back to back kind of thing. It was New York and then L A. And I'm like, well, let me give it one more shot. And then I really really enjoyed it. I have to, I do suffer from that sometimes. Like I go into film. Uh, go into a film with my own expectations and sometimes the first viewing is a bit of a disaster because the film is not what I want it to be and I know I should be more open-minded but it is something that I do quite regularly do and I've, I've often done quite a few turnarounds on movies once I go back a second time and I'm kind of more familiar with what's actually in store for me and I'm able to judge the movie uh, on its own terms. I mean have you done U-turns like that on uh, many films? Not many. Um, I've done kind of purposeful turns as well. There's been some where I, I – and it comes down to a pretension kind of thing. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> there's been some films where I'm like, I know there's something more to this. I, let me just rewatch it, and I know I'm going to get something good out of it. So there's been a couple films where I've kind of forced myself into liking it and enjoying it, and now I do. Not just from a – as a lover of film, I, I, I should I should enjoy this film, but as like a genuine like appreciation. Kind of like how you listen to a song or a band ironically and you're mm. like oh this is kind of goofy fun but then you actually start to genuinely like that band or song it's very the same way okay well we're talking about a, a film that uh, was meant to spawn a franchise but obviously um, it didn't in the end and uh, that kind of made me think you know about films that uh, you know perhaps should have spawned uh, sequels and, and other films so I, I kind of wondered if there was a film out there that just existed in its own right that you would actually think you know why you know why didn't they make a follow-up to that I'd love or you know I'd love to see more adventures of that of that character is there any any kind of film out there that fits that bill for you it does um it's a film that actually teased a further series of of like following these characters adventures but it never fell through and that's rock and roller 
It was a 2008 mm. Guy Ritchie film. Gerard Butler, Tom Wilkinson, Idris Elba, Jeremy Piven. A lot of big names that have gone on to do like really great films and are are, are probably the price tag alone would be – I mean Tom Hardy's in it too. The price tag alone would be hard to get them all back together. But at the end of the film, they tease and they say, hey, these characters will return in the real rock and roller. And it's just a bummer that it didn't pan out that way. It's a film that didn't get, a, I feel like, a lot of recognition or love when it came out. It, to me, it was one of those, under, not underground, but uh, back in the days of Blockbuster over here in the States. Uh, I remember walking around one night and seeing this film. I'm like, oh, this looks okay. I, you know, I'd seen other films from Guy Ritchie before, mm-hmm. like Snatch and that kind of thing. And I watched it, and I was just blown away. And I really, really dug it. And it actually ended up becoming a gateway for me to get into The Wire – because Idris Elba plays a main character in The Wire and starting my love for that. so, And it also got me into Tom Hardy, too, seeing him in that role as Handsome Bob. And I think the year after that, I'm pretty sure that's when he did Bronson. Yeah, he did Bronson a little bit after that, too. So all of a sudden I started paying attention to him. So it was a nice launching pad for me into those different actors' filmographies, if you will. So to see it not continue on and go on, is it's disappointing. Well, that's really interesting you mentioned that film, especially in light of what we were just talking about, because I saw Rock and Roller in the cinema and hated it. And really? Yeah, I really didn't like it. So in spirit of what we were just talking about, tell me why you really enjoyed this film, and I will go back and I will give it another watch, because I've never seen that film again, and I've just thought, oh, you know, why waste my time? I, th- I think, honestly, it's a combination of the atmosphere and a little bit of the absurdity of it all. Um, the atmosphere, I mean, you have, what is it, Gerard Butler is one, two, and you got Mumbles played by Idris Elba. They're all together, kind of back and forth doing their thing. Mark Strong comes in every so often as Archie, kind of this, like, smarmy, kind of borderline dick to Tom Wilkinson's <laughs> character. And... I don't know, just the camaraderie, just the back and forth between them two. It's one of those films where I'm like, man, I wish I could live in that universe and be a part of this gang or that gang. Then the absurdity of some of the fights that go on when Gerard Butler's kind of hunted down, if you will, by these two uh, Russian like uh, gangster mobster types. Yep. Um, Tom Hardy's character. I just, I'm a sucker for Tom Hardy. Anything he's in, I'm, I'm strongly biased to where I'm going to immediately love it. Toby Kebbell's performance as Johnny Quid, I really, really dug him. I really dug just his performance, really, when he gives the speech about the pack of cigarettes and, and comparing that to life and everything at the bar. Like, I don't know, maybe it was my adolescent brain, but and not that I'm saying like, oh, man, it was so deep. But it was like it was kind of touching in a way like, yeah, you know what? He's right. You know, he's, he's making a point. I felt like the music was great. It also did something really fun. There's a scene where they're at a party. And I believe Guy Ritchie has done this since, but they're at a party and they're dancing around and they're talking and there's like these colorful little subtitles that come popping up, like a little trait that he's since used in, oh, what was it? Uh, The Man from Uncle. Mm. He used it there too. So just like little visual tricks and and fun stuff there. And I don't want to give away some of the plot in case somebody goes to see it, but there's like little takes and turns that happen and those are kind of fun to to, – I guess experience – and then as the characters go along their arcs, it's just one of those things where it almost feels like an origins film where you get this group together and now, hey, let's see what they can do next now that we kind of have a full understanding. But then it just doesn't happen. Well, I don't want to dwell on the career of Guy Ritchie anymore. Let's uh, let's get this uh, let's get this show on the road. So uh, let's get stuck into Sahara. So take it away, trailer man. 
for Explorer Dirk Pitt and his team. This is the place. The ship should be here. I have to warn you, it is very dangerous for foreigners. It was a ghost ship, a cursed ship. The mystery that's buried with a long-forgotten legend carries a threat. This thing could kill millions. No one could have imagined. Safina du Almount. That sounds poetic. What's it mean? The ship of death. Great! This spring. The Americans I was telling you about, they will soon find out what we're doing. And now the problem is mine. You better to be boarded! I'm sorry, I don't speak English. You are speaking English now. I have some bad news about your boat. Adventurer and naval salvage expert Dirk Pitt goes in search of a ship from the American Civil War that was lost whilst carrying millions in gold. Pitt's hunt takes him to Africa, of all places, where he journeys up the Niger River into Mali, which is in the midst of a civil war. Along the way, Pitt falls in with a World Health Organization doctor who is also trying to get to Mali in order to find the source of a mystery disease which has started killing people from the area. Can Pitt find his missing treasure? Will the good doctor prevent the deaths of thousands of people? And will anyone explain how or why a ship from the American Civil War is in the middle of the Malian desert? Sahara came out in 2005. It stars Matthew McConaughey as adventurer Dirk Pitt. What a name. Penelope Cruz plays the glamorous doctor trying to stop the disease outbreak. And there are supporting roles for Steve Zahn, William H. Macy and Delroy Lindo. It was directed by Breck Eisner, who also made The Crazies and The Last Witch Hunter. Now, there's a sort of interesting backstory to the production of Sahara. Um, as sort of mentioned at the introduction, it's based on a successful series of novels by Clive Cussler. And the intention of this film was to create an action-adventure franchise. However, Sahara was a notable box office failure, losing, according to some reports, over $100 million and earned a reputation as one of Hollywood's most notorious flops. Um, the reason for this may be the quality of the film itself, as it was not critically well-received, with the Washington Post describing it as mediocrity wrapped inside a banality toasted in nice fresh cliché. That said, it still has an audience rating of 53% on Rotten Tomatoes and a rating of exactly 6 on IMDb. But uh, yeah, enough of me talking and enough of this background. Nick, what did you make of uh, Sahara? I didn't care for it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I borderline thought it was boring, actually. There was one part where I was watching it and I kind of fell asleep. So I had to wake up and rewind it. <laughs> you poor man. Yeah, um, I had to go back and rewatch it. And uh, yeah, I just was just genuinely disappointed. I expected something a little bit more. I mean, it's this big budget action adventure film in the Sahara and I just found myself not caring about a lot of things about the characters about what they were doing where they were going I just I I think what hurt was I just genuinely wasn't interested so I kind of just went through the motions and it became a little predictable and I could figure out like oh this is the reason for that or oh this is for that and then we can get to it a little bit later but then there's like that whole soccer ball scene and I'm like really <laughs> this is how this is how but I just I didn't care for it. Yeah. Well, I think I'm a bit warmer on the movie than you. I mean, I, I I'm not going to make any great claims for this being a great movie in any stretch or 
stretch of a stretch of the imagination perhaps worryingly perhaps my standards have just got so low that um that actually uh, a film of such middling quality as the sahara is is not more offensive but um you know i i thought that this was uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't awful uh it stuff happened in it um there wasn't necessarily um strong reasons for that stuff happening and certainly i recognize the lack of you know investment that you had in in the in the plot and in the characters i think that's definitely a problem of this particular movie but uh yeah i've kind of watched it a couple of times now and i was a little bit warmer on its second time around i i think just because I sort of, uh, you know, was just like, eh, okay, you're not going to find out the answers to any of this stuff. It doesn't really make sense, but uh, there's still stuff to, uh, still stuff to enjoy here. Uh, yeah, yeah, there, <laughs> there, there is. Work with me, Nick. <laughs> there, there are some things. I, I will say there's some things to enjoy. Like there's a little bit of creativity. Um, when they're flying, like not flying, but driving like the land yacht through, like mm. there's some really cool scenes. Some of the fight sequences are neat, and how he um, they directed uh, the Confederate battles in the beginning through Virginia and stuff. Like that's that's pretty neat as well. There are some really cool looking scenes, but outside of that, when you get to the story, yeah, it's I don't want to say mindless fun because I hate using that phrase, but you expected something a little more fun and exciting. But I was just missing that fun and excitement. It felt like at times it took itself really seriously, but then let off. And it, it's almost like the film figured out what it was about halfway through and then played it up. But by then I was already out of it, so I wasn't feeling it. Well, let's dig into to some of the, the I think the problematic elements in the in this film, which is. The, the plot essentially and you know i talked in uh, you know gave a quick sort of pricey of of the of the plot here i've left quite a few things out because the plot is pretty batty uh to say the least and i don't think that this film does a great job of really meshing the the different plot elements together so you have you have um you know matthew mcconaughey is character who is this uh you know naval salvage expert who kind of hears a whisper that this you know apparently he's spent his whole life looking for this lost american civil war ship which has got some gold on it he's spent his whole life trying to track this thing down he hears a whisper that it might be somewhere in the middle of the saharan desert does that really make any sense uh make your own judgment and then we have this is combined with this um element of the disease uh this disease potential disease outbreak which could have disastrous impacts it's i don't know it's all a bit unclear quite what the disease is you know how it spreads how it affects people and this is kind of meshed together for me very ineffectively and i think that really hurts the movie i'm kind of guessing you had a similar take no absolutely and in fact it really threw me off that they start with this battle from the confederacy but in my mind i'm like okay makes sense they're looking for a confederate ship we kind of have to see how it got there to an extent but then all of a sudden it cuts to now we're just in the middle of an of a chat with some World Health Organization doctors and they're trying to figure out this disease. Like what does 
what does this matter? The focus should be on Dirk and the others trying to convince their boss, hey, let's go look for the ship. Let's go do this thing. Let's show us these guys and talk about them. And then they just so happen to come across these doctors who then join them. And that should be their subplot should be maybe five minutes of the film. And it's just the conversation of, yeah, we've been here figuring out this mysterious disease. Okay, cool. And then they go off and do something else, but join along. And because they have this expertise, they're able to figure out, oh, hey, this is interesting because it links back to this and another maybe two, three minutes. And then we're good. You cut a good 30 minutes out of the film of nonsense that you don't need. (laughs) And it is largely nonsense because we never really like find out why is Matthew McConaughey so invested in this like yeah. civil war shit we never find out quite you know why he really cares so much about its fate we never find out why it turns up in the middle of the saharan desert you know you're kind of expecting that to be explained at some point in this film and it never is yeah and it's and i would the whole time i'm waiting for him to say hey we found this treasure chest and inside is a journal entry and you know doc roberts said that you know they were trying to go south to florida and ended up hitting i don't know like brazil or something and then they thought they were going one way but they went the other and ended up in like senegal or ghana and ended up in mali or or something and then even then exactly like you said why why is he so interested in this it couldn't be all it needed was like a quick monologue a quick Maybe minute, minute and a half of, you know, when I was a kid, my grandfather always told me the story of this ship and his grandfather told it to him Mm. and I promised him one day I'd find it, blah, 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 blah. All they needed was that and then I would have been a little okay with it. Sure, it would have been ham-fisted and cliched, but it's something. It beats it beats seeing a bunch of (laughs) newspaper clippings about, hey, did you hear about this ship from a long time ago? Look at these two guys growing up. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's this ship that that no one else is talking about (laughs) but his character. Even when they go to bring it to uh, the Admiral, William H. Macy, he's like, again with the ship. If this was the second or third film in this series, I can see like people being like, oh, my God, they're finally going to go after this ship. I could see it being like teased throughout the films. But if you're just going to start into this and all of a sudden he's on about the ship, like who who cares? I don't care mm. about the ship. I don't. And then uh, spoilers, when they end up finding the gold later on in the film, they don't do anything with it. It just sits in a cave. You don't. <laughs> As an explorer or as a whatever you want to be, don't you think that you have some type of duty, some type of oath to say, hey, you know what? We only found this little bit of gold. Let's put it in a museum somewhere and turn the next page in history and show, hey, here's some cool things that happened. Well, I think possibly some of the the reasons for that might be the the very messy production of this of this movie. And, um, you know, if you uh, what apparently... um, Clive Cussler, who is the author of the novel, had a lot of um, he was meant to have final uh, script approval on on the movie that was made, which is uh, very unusual for uh, an author to have. um, You know, they're they're allowed to have some input, but not to have sort of final script approval. And uh, apparently what happened was the uh, you know, there was so much backwards and forwards with Clive Cussler saying, no, I want this stuff to still be in there. And and the filmmakers are, you know, it doesn't make sense. We need to take it out. But actually, they just went ahead and shot the movie without his kind of final permission on on the script because they just got sort of so exasperated but i think out of that i think that uh, you know that 
backwards and forwards. Uh, there was an awful, if you look at the the history of this movie, there's an awful lot of writers employed on this movie, and it just feels like the, the, this this whatever draft of the script this is, it, it's probably you know somewhere you know it's probably the 273rd draft of the script for this movie because there's there's elements throughout this film like there's a character kind of like a sinister sort of Tuareg type character who is, it seems, spying on Penelope Cruz's UN doctor, but his presence is never explained. And you kind of think, okay, yeah. maybe we're going to find out later why he's um, seen to be spying on her and why he then attacks her. That whole attack on Penelope Cruz is never explained. And you kind of think, yeah, you just think, well, who is this character? Why is he there? It's never explained. And that's just one of many examples of, of kind of, yeah, the, uh, I think a sort of a, a script that just got put through the, the meat grinder so many times that it just came out in a bit of a sort of, yeah, chopped up mess. Yeah, and it's frustrating, too, that we don't have that kind of payoff, because even if the reason was, oh, we didn't want her to find the reason for the disease was because of the uh, chemicals and compounds found within the ship. Because it felt like to me even they were surprised that there was a ship there because they came across it by mistake. <laughs> really? That's how you discover it? So, so – and, and this is where we get into spoiler territory, and I hate to kind of jump the gun here, but it, this is frustrating. They happen to be in a random village kicking a soccer ball around, and it miraculously goes down several flights of stairs into this cave where there's all kind of pictures and drawings. So one would think, okay, they know where it is, but they don't because it's just in the dirt somewhere that they only come across <laughs> by by chance. Everything in this movie, there's too many things that are by chance, and that bothers me. There's not enough things that are like by design. I can understand if if the ship was hiding underneath of the big solar plant that they had going up. To me, that makes sense. But to have it just, oh, it's just in a riverbed somewhere. Really? Your whole <laughs> this is it for you? Everything else makes sense. Like if you look at the Indiana Jones films, he was trying to get from A to B. And in point B, you knew exactly what was going to be there, and that was going to be the grail or or what have you or the or the heart or whatever you were gonna find it you knew where it was but here it was like ah eh, we'll come across it sooner or later hey gang look what we happen to find similarly this this film provoked um, thoughts about like raiders of the lost ark and you know because that's a classic action adventure uh, movie very much of the style that i guess they thought they were making with uh, with sahara and it kind of made me you know think about okay why does a film like that work and why does sahara not work and because they both essentially have pretty daft pretty daft plots you know raise the lost ark is about some chest that holds the power of god inside it which is a pretty bonkers concept to have and you know it's probably no more daft really than the concept of sahara but that film works and this one doesn't i mean you know what makes a, a film with a daft plot work and one not work I think it works for two reasons. The first reason is there is a very easy and understandable jump to go from location to location. With Sahara, it feels like, oh, we just happen to be here. Oh, we just – it's a lot of coincidence. Whereas you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in the beginning, he's in this jungle, and all of a sudden he gets defeated, so he's back and he's teaching. And all of a sudden he has a conversation. It's like, you know, we really want you to go do this, and he goes off and does this. And then it snowballs into what it becomes. There's also – now that I'm thinking about it, there's also a very clear – villain in the beginning when he gets defeated by that guy i can't remember the guy's name right now but his like arch nemesis archaeologist or whomever belloc that's a good good pull 
when Belloc is like, hey, I got the statue now, ha, you lose. It even falls into the Uncharted video games, um, which are very similar to the Indiana Jones thing. You have a very clear, like, hey, I need to get to this before that guy does. And I think Sahara falls apart with that. Well, there are a lot of very good actors in this film. How do you think they work together? I think there's a definite camaraderie and and rapport between McConaughey and Steve Zahn. And I can't yeah. think off the top of my head if they've ever been together in another film before I think or have. since. I think have they, they I think he's um, Zahn's turned up in quite a few McConaughey things. So I'm pretty sure he was in Dallas Buyers Club and I'm pretty sure he was in something else. Um, so I don't know if they are um, like mates or what their backstory is, but it just seemed quite interesting that in McConaughey's movies, um, Zahn um, keeps cropping up. So um, perhaps one of the reasons that they kind of, they have that rapport in the, in this film, which is like, I definitely agree there. That's one of the sort of better things about this movie. Um, perhaps it's actually because it's, they've got that same sort of rapport in, in real life. Well, it would be great to see that translate into more films together, uh, more expanded roles together, something, because they just work really, really well together. And I would like – even if Rain Wilson popped up on occasion and did his thing, and, and even their uh, back and forth with William H. Macy's character, that works really well too. Like the whole gang, I feel, works really, really well together. Maybe Penelope it's just Cruz? me. That's I mean, what I'm getting at. Maybe it's just me. I feel like they kind of shoehorn her in there. I feel like they're just like, oh, we're focused on these guys, but she's in here too. I just, I wish there was more of her, and I wish that I guess she was more a part of it instead of all of a sudden just, hey, here I am. Oh, you're in the group now. Hey, this is over. Hey, we're on a beach now. Like that does. It just felt. It didn't feel natural to me, whereas everything else felt very natural. Well, she doesn't really have a lot to do once she's part of the group, apart from sort of need to be, you know, rescued periodically. So I think I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, she doesn't she doesn't really work so well as a character. I don't think she's necessarily bad in this movie. I think she just doesn't have anything to do. Whereas Steve Zahn, you know, he's got little there's moments within the film where he has to do a thing at, which fits into the, you know, the bigger picture of the movie. And uh, Penelope Cruz doesn't really have anything to do along those lines. And it makes you wonder, too, if further along the line in the, I guess, the series with Dirk that uh, Clive Custler had going does this character show up again is it a one-off bond girl type situation like if if this series were to continue would she flourish would we see more of her would there be more of an understanding i don't know i didn't really get i didn't know how to perceive her character as the film went on and like and i agree completely with what you said like she just didn't have much to work with she was truly the princess peach to this mario and luigi duo <laughs> Now I need to give a little special mention to uh, Delroy Lindo, who is in this in this particular movie, and uh, he's somebody that uh, uh, Exploding Helicopter uh, saw recently uh, when we uh, reviewed uh, the film Broken Arrow, which uh, features a phenomenal um, four exploding helicopters. So uh, yeah, it was good to see uh, Delroy Lindo in another exploding helicopter movie, and he's uh, he's, he's starting to rack up uh, you know some uh, appearances in some uh, some pretty uh, heavyweight exploding helicopters. 
helicopter movies. But uh, the one or another reason I wanted to bring up Delroy Lindo though was was the scene, one of the scenes, and this is again, uh, you know, sorry for anyone uh, listening to this um, who hasn't seen um, Sahara, but uh, I don't think Nick and I can spoil the movie any more than the script writers and the director have. So uh, I, I'm mm-hmm. not really going to apologise too much for this. But uh, one of the the end scenes of this movie, and sees. Delroy Lindo, who plays this uh, CIA operative, basically poison the one of the villains of the piece, you know, and you, he, he deliberately fills his glass with some poison unbeknownst to this guy. And, you know, you're left to draw your own conclusion that uh, this guy is you know, going to endure uh, a painful death. And I don't know about you, Nick. I thought that was a super weird note to end this movie on. That was incredibly weird to the point where I looked over because my fiance was watching it with me and she just kind of throws her hands up and says, so what, he's just going to poison him and leave? <laughs> and that's kind of how we're left. It's not like this big like to do. It's just like winking and nod like, hey, I got him. <laughs> OK, <laughs> well, what does this solve? What does this do? What are the consequences here? Like what's what's really going to happen? And it doesn't feel satisfactory either it still wants me like leaving more and then again is this a character that throughout the rest of the series how often does he pop up is he in there at all is this a one-off mm. like because the only reason Delroy lindo is involved in this movie is because he's doing a favor for william h macy and you know so he does him this this favor of kind of tracking down where you know conaghy and steve zahn are in the, in the mali and does it but you kind of think that favor is not going to extend to just cold-bloodedly murdering somebody. Maybe, maybe he is that. Maybe that was meant to be his character, but the film doesn't set it up that way. It just is a, yeah, just a super weird note to to sort of chuck in at the end of this movie. And then we cut to a shot of Penelope Cruz and McConaughey frolicking around on a beach. We just, we yeah. just go from sublime to the ridiculous. Yeah, and then they're again frolicking on the beach completely forgetting the fact that oh i don't know dr frank hopper was murdered and you know where what are you doing with your career now like everything is just up in the air and she's like doesn't matter i'm on a beach somewhere like get get a little bit real for a second and that's again adds to the whole is she a bond girl type is she a character that pops up every so often like what was really her role other than token female I don't think there is an answer to that question. I think she was a token female. So uh, on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com, or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. After discovering the Civil War ship buried in a Saharan sand dune, McConaughey and his chums dive inside to avoid 
General Kazim, who is trying to kill them from his attack helicopter. McConaughey readies a 150-year-old cannon that's aboard the abandoned ship. He waits for the most opportune moment before firing the cannon. It launches an iron projectile which crashes through the windscreen of the chopper. The metallic sphere appears to fall harmlessly into the rear of the chopper. However, a second glance reveals that there's a fuse slowly burning down. Before Kazim can throw it out of the whirlybird, the bomb explodes, destroying the chopper. Nick, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? I really, really liked this exploding helicopter for two reasons. One, well, actually just one reason. It just <laughs> felt very realistic to me. It wasn't a explosion over the top. Pieces are going everywhere, and it does this weird spiral thing to the ground. It just explodes and then falls straight down vertically. And my question to you is, I can't recall ever seeing that in a film before. Are there other exploding helicopters that just do that and just fall straight down and don't go whirly burden off to the left or the right or whatever direction? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a few examples of, of that. So it tends to happen when you have a, a helicopter that is just hovering in a particular location, which is what you see here. So uh, very give you a very famous film which features uh, a similar sort of fiery chopper fireball that just uh, you know plunges straight down so uh, if you check out true lies the, the uh, okay. exploding helicopter there it explodes in the air then crashes straight down to the ground where and it hits the ground and, and explodes again so yeah it's uh it's something that uh, you know chopper fireball aficionados will have seen before well this was it was a pleasant surprise to me and i i really liked that touch i don't know why but i just really thought it was cool and you must, I mean, I really enjoyed seeing a, a helicopter be destroyed in a completely new and unique way. I don't, you know, certainly uh, no helicopter in any other film um, that has yet been made or that I've found has been exploded by a, uh, a cannon. Obviously, t they tend to, they were basically not a kind of, uh, not a weapon that is sort of used much. Uh, you know, they, the kind of the overlap of helicopters and cannons didn't really happen. So I guess it was something that I never expected to see in a movie. So I was quite delighted to see that type of old school weapon getting an outing here in this particular movie and getting to down a helicopter that threw me off too because i really thought during the chase that it was just going to be hey we fired up a couple shots a stray hit somebody in a shoulder it goes down i kind of thought it was going to be something like that or maybe out of nowhere somebody fires off a missile just something very typical but to see a cannonball go through that was also really, really cool. I mean, it's no harpoon gun, but a cannonball, I'm for it. I want to see more creative ways. I want to see that. And they also kind of draw out, I guess, the the anticipation of the chopper fireball a little bit in that sequence by having the, the helicopter doesn't just explode immediately when it's hit by the cannonball. It kind of crashes into the back of the helicopter, sits there for a few seconds as the fuse burns down. So you get that classic despairing, what the, oh no, look from the uh, from General Kazim before he finally um, expires in a, a, you know, a massive uh, explosion. But uh, yeah, I appreciated the way it just sort of drew out that, you know, the, the kind of the inevitable um, exploding helicopter moment. I mean, even before that, too, when they're trying to get the cannon together, it took a lot to get that cannon together. It was kicking down doors. It was pulling on cords several times, not just one or two times. And to see that consistent failure and then you're like, oh, OK, finally, they're going to get them. And then they don't quite. And you're just like you said, oh, no, why? How can this be? And then, boom, here comes the payoff. So it was it was a very enjoyable fireball, uh, despite to me a less than enjoyable film. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I think that just about wraps things up. Nick, thanks for joining me once again. Do you want to take a moment to uh, to plug French Toast Sunday and uh, anything else you got going on at the moment? Absolutely. FrenchToastSunday.com is where you can find myself and my other compatriots. Uh, you have Lindsay and Jess and Rob and Mark. Uh, it's a wonderful group of Baltimore-based film lovers. We do reviews every so often, fun, fancy posts. The podcast episodes, they've been a little sporadic lately. Um, we've just been going through a lot of life changes. Some of us bought houses. Some of us had surgeries. Some of us are getting ready to get married. So it's a lot of it kind of went on the back burner, but we're planning ahead and looking to 2019 to be a really big and really fun year for us. So definitely check us out, FrenchToastSunday.com, and of course the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now I've got a note here which says I need to remind you to rate, review, and retweet this podcast. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Where are they? They are looking for the doctor. I have to put you on hold. I don't believe this is a normal shakedown, huh? If you do not get up from your engine, you run the risk of being fired upon. The doctor. We are looking for the doctor. Where are they? Uh, Where is the I'm woman? I'm sorry, I don't speak English. <laughs> You are speaking English now. No, no. I only know how to say I don't speak English in English. Uh-huh. Al. Hi. Hold on. Stop, stop the engine.